This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires port in of number not currently active on T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with Dan Favalli. Uh, we are missing Andy Bailey today, who is celebrating the birth of his second child. So tweet out some congratulations to him. It's been a week and a half in the NBA season, and it's been kind of a crazy, crazy week and a half. We've seen some monster individual performances, looking at Anthony Davis, Russell Westbrook, James Harden, you know, even guys like DeMarcus Cousins, and I guess that's not too surprising given the situations that they're in, but you know, a lot of weird developments, a lot of uh, unexpectedly awesome games early on. We've seen Kevin Durant already play against the Oklahoma City Thunder. The Cavaliers are the only undefeated team left in the league, so Dan and I are going to tr- kind of treat this as a throwback podcast where we don't really have a specific... Skydiving. This is amazing. Yeah, but you know what else is amazing? An iPhone 6S for just 49 bucks at Metro. Really? Imagine streaming all the way down with that amazing camera. I'm switching. That's smart. You know what else is smart? Parachutes. Woo! Switch to Metro and get an amazing iPhone 6S for only 49 bucks. Metro by T-Mobile. Phone offer requires port in of number not currently active on T-Mobile Network or active on Metro in past 90 days. See store for details and terms and conditions. Specific topic to talk about other than NBA basketball. So I'm just going to throw it over to him and we'll see what happens. My biggest question is why in the hell less than 18 months removed from an Achilles injury that Wesley Matthews is leading the NBA in minutes per game and the Mavericks are all in four. Are you doubting Rick Carlisle? I don't want to, but I just wrote about this the other day that it's probably time for us to stop believing that he can that he can take Dirk, a bunch of injury-prone also-rans, um, and some flyers, churn out a top-10 offense in a playoff berth. Like, it just doesn't – this doesn't seem like it's going to be the year that it's done for them. No, I, I don't have much confidence in the Mavericks at all. I don't know that I'm going to pin it on Wesley Matthews or anything, but that team just doesn't really have the upside well, not- this year. I know, I know you're him. not pinning it on him. I just don't understand. Like, I, clearly, it's not sustainable. I guess, but like, why is that a thing? Like, I know they're shallow, but but damn, I guess they're trying to get their four years worth out of them. It's weird that the first complaints about minutes are directed at Rick Carlisle and not Tom Thibodeau, who's kind of done a great job in Minnesota, like balancing minutes. Uh, the game 
the night before we're recording this against the Denver Nuggets, um, you know, he took out Carl Anthony Towns, Andrew Wiggins, Zach Levine for a pretty long stretch of the third quarter into the fourth quarter, despite, you know, the team giving up a lead and, you know, they maintained their, their pretty even position in that game. And he actually like managed young players minutes. Well, it was shocking. He doesn't have anyone averaging more than 35.3 ticks a night, which is pretty amazing for him when you consider what happened with Butler and Thibodeau. I honestly was worried that uh, at least one of Wiggins, Levine, and Towns was going to be run into the, the ground by him. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even use the Jimmy Butler example. I think Luol Dang is the better one. You know, just playing such high minutes throughout his time in Chicago. Going to Miami even Noah. And, yeah, kind of getting a little washed up before he should have been. So yeah, kudos to uh, to Tibbs. Uh, although I thought it was pretty irresponsible of him to sprain Ricky Rubio's elbow yeah, after the mean. game so that Chris Dunn could start. That just seemed like just name be a man and name Chris Dunn your starter outright. Don't injure your point guard. Is Dunn the rookie of the year favorite now? Why was Dunn ever the rookie of the year favorite? I'm sorry, I'm not. Like, I, think, I think it was because we had Simmons get injured. We had Brandon Ingram struggle during the preseason. We have the Joel Embiid minutes restrictions. And other than that, like no one's really springing into the lead. That's probably fair. I still think, and I felt this way before the season started after Simmons went down, that Joel Embiid, Joel Embiid was going to be too good for us to read into like a smaller sample size. And I think that has been the case. But I also said this right before the season started. If I had any guts at all... I would have picked Jalen Brown for Rookie of the Year just because minutes will probably be an issue with him all year, but with Smart being injured to start the season and now Jay Crowder out for a little bit, he's kind of established himself. He's shooting well on threes, unsustainably well. Uh, He works his ass off on defense. He's not necessarily always good on that side of the ball yet, but he, he attacks and he hustles, and he just seems so damn smart. I can only try and fathom and will probably fail what he'll turn into while playing under Brad Stevens. He had maybe the best rebound I've ever seen the other night <laughs> against the Cavaliers. So, like, I know how silly it is to highlight just one rebound, but boxing out Kevin Love, going up with one hand, corralling the ball, falling out of bounds, sling- slinging it to a teammate. Like Seriously, like if you have not seen this rebound, pause the podcast, make sure you come back later, and then go to YouTube and find it. Because it's awesome. The other thing is he just, and this, I guess it's really not basketball related, but it's probably correlated to how smart he is, or at least self-aware. Did you see what he said about LeBron after the Celtics' loss last night? Like, that's phenomenal. Just like, no one comes out and really says that about LeBron. Probably because we expect so much of him post-2010 or 2012, whatever. But the fact that he said this, and he's... Like it, that he takes stock of what LeBron is doing. He realizes it, and and then says it is is really cool to me. Do you and the have other the exact thing, quote on you, or can you look it up? I have it. Yeah. Cool. While while you're looking that up, I'll just say that I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with Embiid because he's looked awesome when he's gotten to play for Philly. I don't think that he's been as efficient as he wants to be yet, but we've seen so many flashes. Whether it's the the turnaround jumpers on the baseline, his ability to create space for mid-range jumpers, block shots on one end, and then hit a three or throw down a huge dunk on the other. Like, his rim protection numbers are amazing. I think he's allowing 39% shooting at the rim so far, 
which would just be ridiculous if he was able to maintain that throughout an entire season. So he looks every bit the real deal. And given the struggles that the rest of the rookie class are experiencing outside of, of Jalen Brown and Chris Dunn, I think that it's almost like irresponsible to pick anyone else at this point. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you there. Um, I just don't, I was surprised that Dunn, that was my main point, that Dunn was the favorite beforehand. I guess the logic made sense, but he was, you know, at least you knew Embiid was going to be starting. And when did Simmons came back, he'll sense? be starting. Like, I don't what? know that it, I don't, I don't know that the logic did make sense because when we look at rookie of the year winners, it's the guys like, let's use Michael Carter Williams as an example from a couple years ago where he wasn't that valuable on the, on the court because his defense was atrocious and he was kind of stat padding on an up-tempo team that didn't have anything to play for. And Dunn's, you know, in the opposite end of the spectrum where the most valuable thing about him is his defense. You know, he's not going to score a lot. He's, he's going to get some assists because that team is so talented and he's running the show, but he's not going to have the box score numbers. And all of a sudden we're going to be asking voters to dig into the advanced metrics and, you know, really be watching and ascertaining value through the eye test instead of just looking at who's put up the most points, rebounds and assists. So kind of always felt funky to me, even though I love his game. Right. But the logic insofar as they were, we were saying, oh, Simmons was injured, Joel Embiid won't have enough minutes, et cetera, et cetera. Like that made sense. But what I was saying before was he, he was starting behind Ricky Rubio. So it only made sense if you firmly believed that Tom Thibodeau was going to eventually ditch Ricky Rubio as the starting point guard. Or intentionally sprain his elbow. Right, that too. So <laughs> while it turned out that that's what happened, it kind of always felt like like a long shot. And so I was still miffed that he, he was the favorite, even at that point. And now looking at it now, he, he's been good, and now he'll get an opportunity to have more volume with Rubio out. But I don't, like you said, Embiid has been so impressive that screw minutes. Like he's just been so good. Exactly. <laughs> If you've watched even two minutes of Joel Embiid, you've come away thinking he's like a sure thing. Right. I mean, and if, if he was a free agent right now, given and, – and you knew about his injury history, the, the lack of opportunities he's had to play over the last couple of years, you'd give him a max contract, right? Like that would happen. Right. I mean, it I takes mean, the, two the minutes big thing to is, is that. Are his, angle, are his feet going to you know, stay intact? And we have no idea. We have no idea. Do you know what's a scary thought? Embiid is extension eligible this summer, this coming summer. If you're the Sixers, do you try and hash out one? You do, right? Yeah, absolutely. You might as well. I mean, he's the process, right? Like, both nickname and, like, he's literally the result of the, the much-ballyhooed process, right? So you cannot abandon it to the extent that you don't even bother signing him to an extension well, like getting rid I, of hinky is one thing like no. not not extending this crown jewel as soon as possible is different well what i more meant was you're gonna you could let him go to restricted free agency and then keep him you know because have the same result right no what i'm trying to say though is, is if you wait it gives you an extra season but if you're philly and you've seen this one season of joel and bead do you just extend him? Like try, like try to really extend him, like the Thunder did with Adams or Oladipo. Like, do you make that commitment now after one season, or do you try and give it another season because you have that right to match? I would try and extend him. 
like well, just this podcast at- is about to take a weird turn but doesn't it depend on the the nuances of the new cba like if there are if if you see that all of a sudden salaries could potentially jump for a, a rookie extension eligible guy wouldn't you want to get it done before that kicks in right but the new cba it would kick in the cba that's going to be agreed upon it looks like it would kick in by the time it beads eligible for an extension anyway would so it- yeah. They can't get it uh, done before that? When, no, they when can't. does it kick in exactly? I don't well, they haven't agreed upon anything yet, but I would assume just after this season like resets or something, or maybe December when they both have the uh, option of opting out. Yeah, because that's what I'm wondering if it's if it's gonna be a situation where there is a brief window where they could agree to an extension under the old terms before the new one kicks in. I would doubt it because Embiid won't be extension eligible until the off season. So that like kind of resets everything, yeah. which would be a good – you would be in. My point is, though, <laughs> after seeing him for one season, if you're Philly, you don't even – do you wait that extra season and try and go through the hoops of restricted free agency knowing you have all the leverage? Or, or do you just extend him because, because of this one season? I think you just extend him. Right. I'm totally there with you. And you probably won't even save that much money because – Maybe Embiid will want that financial security, so maybe he'll take a little bit off the top. But if you're him, you know that if you enter free agency healthy, like you're getting an auto, you're getting an yeah. auto max deal. Absolutely. Like it's. I'm glad that Joel Embiid is less than ten games into his NBA career. We're already <laughs> talking about his max extension. Well, I, I guess the other thing with Embiid is, does him looking this good this soon change your opinion of Philly's ceiling? Like we we know how much off, uh, upside this team has. With him, with Ben Simmons, with Dario Saric, does the timetable get moved up a little bit? I mean, when when do we think this team is making the playoffs, and has that changed since we last thought about it? It definitely expedites their timetable. I just don't. We need to see Ben Simmons and him work together first, which is something we haven't. There's still so many question marks. The front court log jam. I think it expedites their timeline insofar as now they have all the reason in the world to start consolidating assets because you you essentially know that, hey, we have Ben Simmons and we have Embiid. These are two superstar-type talents, the ones that Hanky wanted, the ones that we knew we needed. We have them. Now we need to build the roster properly around them, which they haven't really started doing if they yet. haven't called the phoenix suns and offered either noel or jaleel okifer and picks for eric bledsoe then everyone there should be fired i don't know how that val- i guess i could see phoenix wanting the pick i don't know how valuable noel or okifer is to them with chandler and bender and len and uh marquis chris there so I, I don't know how much value you'd get out of phoenix i'll work in a th- third team or something but i mean the point point being they need to go after a point guard. Do you think it's something they're waiting for, though? Because there's, if the Lakers, I'm not sure if the Lakers will keep their pick. What is it? Top two protected? Is it top three protected? It was Are top there three any last protections year. Protections this year. I'm gonna look it up. Um, because there's a chance now that you're going to go into this draft with two Which top is five loaded picks with point guards too. So it's top three protected it? apparently, okay. and then unprotected. Um, in 2018, so if but the they're Lakers have one of the top three themselves anyway, 
But that's what I'm saying is there's a chance they could be going into this draft with two top five picks. So maybe there's no rush for them to pull off that mega blockbuster because you're going to try and hit on two superstar types again, and maybe you'll hit on one. So they, the, only they have reason, a, the only reason I disagree is that the longer you wait, the more you run the risk of values declining. You know, because I think Okafor is going to continue to be exposed in this location. I don't think that Noel is going to get enough playing time to properly showcase his value. So I think it's one of those strike while the iron's hot situations. Well, well, for me, I don't think Okafor can hurt his value any more than he essentially has because if they could have gotten, like, let's say a top 10 pick or something for him, I think he'd be gone already. As for Noel, he might be more valuable, and I doubt Philly fans will want to hear this, but he might be more valuable if they just match whatever contract offer he gets as a restricted free agent. Like, sit on him, just pay that bill, and then you trade him next season because teams will give up more for a guy who isn't approaching restricted free agency. I guess it's different because whatever team trades for him has the ability to keep him if they want, but at least if you're the Sixers, you're now selling him on, hey, he's already under this contract, like something like that. So I don't think they're going to... The players that they need to move, their values aren't going to plummet any further if they wait, and some of them will probably only improve. Like, I, What values are you worried about plummeting? The values of those two picks that they're going to have, those aren't going to go down anytime soon. Yeah, it's more just the players, but I, I can't shake the feeling that Noel can still work with this team because of how stretchy Embiid has looked. You don't need your yeah, power forward to be able to shoot if your center is going to be knocking down threes. So I, I don't think it's unreasonable to expect Ben Simmons, Nerlens Noel, and Joel Embiid working together. I don't know where that leaves Sarich. I don't know what they're going to do on the wings to provide enough spacing around them, but I, I don't think that that's an untenable situation. I, I don't see a scenario in which Okafor fits in. I don't, I don't disagree, but I just don't think waiting is going to help or hurt his value because I think the way the NBA is going, we're at the point where people aren't saying, oh, death to the big man, but the big man does need to do a bunch of stuff that Okafor does not, play mm-hmm. defense, shoot. So it's interesting that you would keep Noel there. You're, you're essentially then saying that Sarek needs to be your long-term sixth man, right? Because are you really going to – I guess you could go Simmons at point guard with Sarek at small forward – but then you're going to run into defensive problems, probably. Oh, good segue, because we can talk about James Harden now. Because that's what that's what the Rockets have been trying to do, right? Is throw out a shooting guard at the point. And Harden's numbers are ridiculous. I mean, I think it's like 14.1 assists per game right now, which leads the league. He's scoring over 30 every night. I'm so glad I have him in a fantasy league. Um, <laughs> but the defense is just beyond atrocious. You know, I mean, they're they're struggling to stop anything that's thrown at them right now. And we, we still are operating in an era that's so dominated by point guards that if you can't provide some sort of check on those guys, or if you have to switch over your point guard onto a wing player because he's that much of a liability, that's a big issue. And, you know, the Golden State Warriors are a natural counterexample to that because they do often let Clay guard the opposing point guard while Steph is a little bit hidden. But they actually have the pieces to make that work, as opposed to Houston, who is then attempting to protect the rim with Ryan Anderson. 
Right. Um, what is interesting, though, is Houston's point guard defense statistically hasn't – their defense has been terrible, but according to hoopstats.com, the point guard, their point guard position has the highest defensive efficiency um, in the league, which is kind of shocking. I'm looking at that. it. I don't buy that. I well, wonder if that's a function of, of who they've played also. It might be a little bit better when Bevs is healthy. I mean, you just look at some of the lineups they're throwing out. Like It's just not conducive to doing it. It's like you said with Ryan Anderson, uh, also Eric Gordon. Trevor Ariza appears to have lost a step or 10. So Clint Capello is a little bit exposed in a bigger role. Well, it would help if he had people who he didn't have to cover up for every five seconds. Well, that's part of the role. (laughs) (laughs) I was a little bit surprised. Like, I wasn't a fan of, like, if you want to use Paul George as a point guard, I wouldn't be as big of a fan of that move. But people were sort of like, Harden shouldn't play. Like, Harden's been the Rockets' point guard since he went there. Like, this is asking him to just do more of what he was doing. And I don't, like, that's not, okay, that's fine. Like, it's not It's not like they were trying the transition D'Antoni was asking Melo to make, which Melo should have made. I don't think it was an unreasonable request, but this isn't like turning Carmelo Anthony into a point forward. This is telling James Harden, who basically was your point guard, to, hey, you're just you're actually our point guard now. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense on offense. I just think that they're going to be better off if they decide to cross-match on defense at some point in the season. They have to do something because they have one of the three worst defenses in the league it's right now. It's really bad. It's like, oh, I mean... One of the four worst. It improved. Oh, oh they played the Knicks. That's why. They played the <laughs> Knicks. That's why. That will do it. No, but, I mean, going back to the Sixers, like, I th- I don't think that you can make Simmons a point guard work. Just Offensively, I think you can. Defensively, I don't. I don't think it's, a, it's tenable. No. Yeah. I mean, in, unless you're going to somehow acquire a bunch of stoppers on the wings and Embiid continues this dominant rim protection. But even then, all of a sudden, you're asking your team to get two-way studs because you still need that floor spacing, and you'll need it even more if Simmons is at the one. So I, right. I, I don't like that solution. I think the better option is going to be seeing if Saric is comfortable being a career sixth man. I mean, it's worked for Manu. Right, and Saric hasn't exactly arrived and been very good to where you could say, hey, he deserves to be more than a yeah, sixth he's man. A, he's had one good game. He looked great during that one good game, but that's about it. So, look, the future with Embiid and Philly is exponentially brighter. Like, But they have to make – now they have to make the necessary moves to build around their core. And, you know, to an extent, they're still deciding who is that core because we just debated, all right, there's Simmons and Embiid. You think Noel might fit in there. Sark might fit in there somewhere. Um, if you're going to fit Noel – with Embiid, you do need to have requisite shooters around him. Uh, so who who is that? It's not Stauskas. It's just not going to happen. I don't know why they're not playing Hollis Thompson more, but maybe it's him. Robert Covington, maybe it's him. But there's still so many. They need to now build the roster. Around, like getting as much talent as possible is now like you're done with that. Like you need to build your roster around your two core guys. That's what they're tasked with doing next. If you're Philly, are there any players – right, if you're running Philly and another uh, GM calls, are there any players you would just hang up the phone if you were asked about? Obviously Embiid, but like would you trade Simmons? Would you trade Saric given the construction of this team? 
Just Simmons and Embiid would be my only untouchables. Mm-hmm. I think I'm right there with you. Because there's not even – like, I don't even know what – it's so hard to value those younger guys, so I don't even know what a monster offer of Simmons would look like. Is it a present-day superstar, or is it a possible number one pick? He's worth more than this year's number one pick and probably the next two number one picks, and I doubt there's a superstar that the Philly would actually need. Most of these superstars would probably be centers that are available yeah. that would be enticing. So those are your only untouchables. If I'm Philly, though, I'm not necessarily – like, I want them to break up their front court logjam. And a friend of the Hardwood Knox podcast, Alec Nathan, I've talked with him about this countless times. Their front court is just ugly, like sometimes with this basing. But I'm, if I'm Philly, I don't necessarily feel the need to be too aggressive, like in making phone calls, because I think now that you know Embiid can be this good and you know that you're getting Simmons back, you can sort of slow play it in the sense that we're just going to do what we need to do to build around these guys as it comes. And they'll have a better idea of how to do that once Simmons is healthy. So I guess there's no rush in trying to break up the current band around Embiid. Speaking of untouchables, we've kind of been playing this game via text today. I I learned that you would not trade Kristaps Porzingis for Nikola Jokic, which I can't blame you for, even though I don't think that move happens either way. Would you trade Embiid for Carl Anthony Towns or Anthony Davis? (sighs) I would trade Embiid for Anthony Davis without question. Yeah. Um, Carl Anthony Towns. I think I would also do that without question. I'm le- I'm leaning toward yes. I might be a question for me just because, like, we know what Davis has turned into, but Embiid and Towns they, they could really just be equals, and Embiid is masquerading in like this smaller sample size. So I might have pause, but I think just because of what Carl Anthony Towns has done and knowing Embiid's health history as well. You have to do that deal. That's what pushes me over the top there. But, I mean, like, those might be the only two players. Like, I don't think it makes that much sense for Philly to trade for, like, a Steph Curry or a Kevin Durant or a LeBron James, given their right, roster so makeup. Like, you for, need that young stud. For other teams, though, like, if you offered me Joel Embiid for Kristaps, I don't know if I'd do that deal because of Embiid's health history. And I think that changes a lot. Of it, if we, if we, if you can guarantee me that neither of them are going to be injured, I, I'd pick Joel Embiid. Yeah. But just because Embiid had to sit out those two years, it's kind of like he might be better than Kristaps, but Kristaps is probably going to play in more games or play more minutes. And it might be the same deal with Jokic. I think that might be a little bit easier of a call, yeah. but it, yeah, it, it would it be, it would be the same deal with Jokic too. I'll tell you what, though. Going into this podcast where we don't really have a topic, I did not expect expect to spend twenty minutes talking about the seventy sixers. Right. Why are we why are we still on them? I'm we not haven't really even sure. talked about we haven't even talked about the biggest storyline, which is the Warriors not going eighty two and zero already. It's basically a failed season. Right. I don't even know why they're showing up to games. They now. should they break up be. the core. What what have your been what have been your first impressions? of that team, this team? That's such a hard question because we're still dealing with, what, like five games at this point? And I I don't think that we're seeing a true representation of what this team is going to be. I think the early early talking points are just that they're figuring things out. You know, we knew knew this team 
was going to struggle to protect the rim a little bit more, although that's looked good at times. We knew the bench wasn't going to be consistent, although we've seen like Ian Clark go off in a game. Um, and, you know, the superstars are going to jockey for touches. That's to be expected. Um, we've seen a vintage Steph Curry explosion with a 23-point third quarter. We've seen Kevin Durant go for 39 points against the Thunder, and we know that's what this team is capable of. And I think, for me, the biggest takeaway so far has been the game that, that Curry had 23. You know, it was, a, it was a close game throughout, and then that happened and they exploded. It wasn't, it wasn't a dominant team performance. Clay, Clay Thompson has still really struggled with his shot. Draymond Green hasn't been as involved as, we, as he needs to be. KD was struggling in that game. The defense, you know, miscommunicating on a lot of switches, and they still blew him out. And I, th- I think that, that shows just how much upside this team has, where if Thompson is going to figure it out, they're going to be virtually unbeatable. And there is going to be a game this year where everyone's connecting, and the defense is communicating, and they're going to beat a team by 80 points. And that sounds hyperbolic, but I'm not sure it is. It, that kind of encapsulates my early impression of the team. It's just the Warriors haven't... They've barely scratched the surface of what they can do. And they're 4-1! and one. Right. And there have been not just flashes, but quarters or halves where they just look unbeatable and they're not even there yet and it makes you wonder like when Kevin Durant first went to the Warriors I was was excited in the sense that wow this is going to be really fun to watch and you know it will be but is there going to come a time where they're just going to destroy the competitive balance as we know it any semblance of it where it's just almost not fun watching them because they're too good I never understood that argument like from people before the season started and then watching the Warriors probably at their worst that they'll be this season. I'm, I'm sort of like, oh, crap. Like this is like this is going to get real eventually. And their best player has been injured. You know, Patrick McCall. <laughs> right. <laughs> what are they going to do when they're allowed to run out the real death squad? <laughs> when KD gets on the bench and McCall comes out. Exactly. No, I, I mean, it's it's terrifying for the rest of the NBA that, you know, they're already winning pretty handily and still figuring it out. The thing I'll look for, though, and that I'll still find fascinating, which is probably why I will never be fully against something like this, is how the rest of the league responds. Because while there will be other teams that prolong their rebuilds and they're just like, we're going to wait out the Warriors or try and do that, there are going to be teams that go for it and really just try and assemble something that maybe isn't necessarily better than Golden State, but is built to beat Golden State itself, even if that's what it's only built to be. See, I don't think we're going to see any teams try and go for the weighted out strategy. I thought that was going to happen last year because, you know, Andrew Bogut, Andre Iguodala were such key pieces, and you could actually see a scenario unfolding where this team aged into regressing towards the rest of the league. Not anymore. Like every guy, every key guy is in their 20s. They've restocked with intriguing young pieces. Ian Clark, Patrick McCaw, um, Kevin Looney, you know, guys like this that could eventually take on bigger roles. They've lessened their reliance on those older pieces. 
and they have these superstars who can take over in the event of an injury. You know, like if Kevin Durant goes down, it's not going to be the end of the world for this team. If Stephen Curry goes down, it's not going to be the end of the world for this team. It might be if Draymond Green gets hurt, but I, I don't think that we're going to see that weighted out strategy come into play so much as teams try and change things up. You know, maybe let's let's look at the Nuggets as an example of a team that's trying to go with this Twin Towers lineup with Jokic and Yusuf Nurkic. I think we're going to see more of that and just trying to come up with the antithesis of the Warriors style where they can slow things down, dictate the pace, win with size, and then try and prolong their rebuilds. I agree with you there, but I, I still think the option of trying to maybe wait it out and deal with the next generation of dubs is, a, is going to be a more appealing option for some teams as this season progresses. Right now, there are so many teams with false playoff hopes that I think we're going to have an influx of sellers at the trade deadline and over the offseason once they realize what they've had. And maybe the main goal won't be, hey, we're just going to sit this out and do a seven-year rebuild, but... I think you're going to see, coming into this season, there was a clear set of teams at the top, and then the middle was is pretty much craziness. I think there will be more dichotomy and clear separation between the middle and the bad teams as we move through this year and into next season. I can see that. Damn right you can, because I'm right. Absolutely. We also got to give some respect to the Cavaliers, because they're still 5-0. It's this team from Cleveland. They won the championship last year. They didn't blow a three to one lead. <laughs> yeah, but they served three to one lead cookies and and had that uh, decoration at James's Halloween party, which was just such a big troll job. Um, I don't think there's anything my, wrong with that. Here's my question about the Cavs: is is one they should go for seventy four wins. They should just do it. If you want to look at where they're going to get eight losses. Two to the Warriors, let's say. Probably one to the Spurs. Like, just go for it because you're, are you going to, can you beat the Warriors in a seven game series, this team? Can we play a game real fast? All right, do it. So the Cavs are the last undefeated team left in the NBA. And I'm looking at their schedule and I don't know when they're going to lose again. So I'm going to read off each of the upcoming games to you. And I want to know when you think that loss is coming. I'll stop. All right, so I'll stop you when you get to it. All right, so we've got at Philadelphia on two days rest. Then we have at home against Atlanta on three days rest, at Washington on three days rest, uh, at home against Charlotte on two days, at home against Toronto on two days, then a back-to-back, the second half of a back-to-back at Indiana. Then we have two days off and at home against Detroit, five days off at home against Portland, two days off at home against Dallas, then a two-game road trip uh, with two games a piece, with two days a piece in between at Philly and at Milwaukee. Then we come back home after three days of rest against the Clippers, and then a three-day road trip December second at Chicago. I'm going to say the Clippers game. All right, so we're there. I think so that, at that point, we're sixteen and zero. Um, and that's maybe because the Clippers' offense does not look good yet. But the crazy but, thing is, if you if you keep going, Chicago, Toronto, New York, Miami, Charlotte, Memphis, Memphis. The Lakers, Milwaukee, Milwaukee, Brooklyn, and then Christmas against the Warriors. Well, Brooklyn. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Sean Kilpatrick looks amazing. You know, Toronto is going to beat them one game. Like, I think that's the thing that, like, the Raptors are going to win one game against the Cavs this this year. Maybe December fifth at Toronto, but I I don't think it's inconceivable that we could be looking at a twenty-eight and zero 
Cavaliers team coming into a Christmas Day showdown with a Warriors team that has one loss. Right. Well, it's again, I don't think it's inconceivable. The thing with the Cavs, though, is they like they play down to the level of their yes. opponent too much. Like you never see them either they'll blow out a team, but then they'll let that team come back, or it'll just be close throughout the entire thing. So you could see one of those games they cut a team too much slack and they lose to a Milwaukee or they lose to a Indiana who, by the way, looks terrible. I, I feel know like you I were called that one. No, you didn't. You were caping for them, weren't you? No, what was I had the argument missing about the playoffs. Well, I'm pretty sure I had them missing the playoffs too. Maybe I wrote their preview and said they wouldn't. They're missing the playoffs. That's out. What are we? What are we? What are we fighting about this year? Then did we really have one? Charlotte. It was Charlotte because I really like Charlotte, and you were less high on them. Did I pick them to miss the playoffs though? No, that was I kind of like you, a lukewarm disagreement. Yeah, I think you had them at the bottom, and I had them getting home court advantage. Oh well, through four games, they have it. <laughs> I'm always right. <laughs> Note that is not true, um, but. I think the cool thing about Cleveland this year is that it's it's kind of becoming a big four. Tristan Thompson has been awesome. You know, his defense is getting better. They're actually trusting him as a playmaker. His finishing around the rim has gotten better. He's more than just a, a, a lob slammer homer. Um, a lob I think, slammer I think we should use homer. that phrase a lot more. Uh, <laughs> I think you could make an argument that he's become their third best player. I, you have Kevin not Love. been watching. You have not been watching Kevin Love, man, enough. I mean, Love looks absolutely fine on offense, but I think that that Tristan's two way value is getting pretty close to to surpassing him. And my TPA metric actually has Tristan as the second most valuable player on the Cavs behind this guy named LeBron. Well, you know, I'll say this: he's probably their second best two way player. Isn't that all that matters? No, I've never understood is- that argument. Can this we have isn't that fantasy. Argument? The argument isn't we're not. This isn't fantasy basketball. Like if you have a player who's elite, really elite in one area of the game, it can still beat out a player who's pretty good in a bunch. Tristan Thompson isn't a great defender. He's not a great. He's a great pick and roll finisher, but he's not a great scorer. He's not a great passer. He's a great rebounder. Like he's good at all these different things. But I don't. Nec- I think I don't know how you can sit here and say. Man, he's better than Kyrie Irving. He's not. He's not no, better I'm not than Kyrie saying, Irving. I'm not saying he is, but I just I think the concept of of two way players is entirely overrated. They might be easier to build around, but that doesn't necessarily make them more valuable in a vacuum, as we so often like to talk about. Because I think James Harden is a fantastic two way player. Oh wait, you were agreeing with me? I thought I was getting ready oh, to argue. <laughs> no, I think I think James Harden is a fantastic two way player. Yeah, his defense sucks, but his offense is so good that he's still great. Like, oh, no, it doesn't. That... It doesn't matter how the value is distributed across the two ends, as long as that value is there. Like if you let's if we really simplify this down, and we're going to grade players on a scale of one to ten for their offense and their defense. If you have a guy who is a seven on both ends, they're a two way player, and I'm using air quotes here for all the people that can't see the video that we're not producing. Uh, but that's a, a total value of 14. And then if you have a guy who's a nine on one end and a five on the other end, he's a one-way player, but he's just as valuable. Like, I've never understood that argument because, yeah, Clay Thompson is a better two-way player than James Harden. Who cares? Right. And I agree with you to the extent that 
saying James Harden is better than Clay Thompson, even though Clay Thompson's the better two way player is ridiculous, but you're I don't you can't like you can't say James Harden is a great two way player just be because his team is such a plus with him on the floor because of his one elite skill. They would be so much better if he was good on defense. But that's irrelevant because he's not. No, like no, not. I will I will continue to say, like, I think that could be my theme of the podcast is that, that James Harden is a great two way player. You are high off your like I just no. But I don't understand how like you're looking at this cumulatively, which is fine. You could say James Harden is better than players who are better two-way players than him. Well, all I'm trying to do is is show the ridiculousness of the two-way phrase by ridiculing it. I don't think it's a I don't think it's a ridiculous phrase though. As long as people can recognize as they should that James Harden, a one-way player, it's is useful. better. It's than- useful for it's use two-way is useful for arguing about the construction of a team. Once a team is already constructed, as the Cavaliers are, it shouldn't be relevant. Because if one player is be- is is more evenly distributed across the two ends, it doesn't matter. Because he still might not produce as much value as one guy who's better on one end. And I realize we're straying really far from the Tristan Thompson-Kevin Love point. But in this case, like Tristan Thompson's ability to contribute at a relatively good level across the board trumps loves one-way impact and i'm not really entirely sure how this relates to our argument now because i'm like arguing well, against just myself. i feel like you just discredited your own argument no I, that, I just think we're talking about different situations like this argument doesn't really apply to the cavaliers because loves love can still be a two-way player here and those two two ways don't add up to as much as tristan thompson does love could still be a two-way player when he has those good defensive sets but tristan thompson's gonna more consistently be a two-way player you're you're looking at this if you want to talk about a team scale where player x is more valuable because his total contributions amount to this that's all I as care opposed about. to player y that's fine but when you actually want to discuss individual players why can't you say so-and-so is a two-way player you can and that's fine i just you just I said think, it was no, ridiculous I think, no i, I I think it's ridiculous when you're trying to make the argument, and I'm not saying that you are. I think it's ridiculous when you're trying to make the argument that somebody is better because he's a two-way player. And that's right. not – you're I not actually, doing I that. Agree. I'm, I'm, straying, I agree. I'm straying from the Tristan Thompson-Kevin Love topic to talk about this. These these two points that I'm making are completely separate. And I th- right. that, that really needs to be emphasized because that is – not, I'm not at all relating these two arguments. I, I see how it gets confusing if you think I am. I agree with your conclusion. I reject. I reject your premise. Like I just the the whole thing just seems like you're devaluing the existence of the two way evaluation process. I get. I get that Jay Crowder isn't more valuable than James Harden or Clay Thompson isn't more valuable than James Harden just because those guys play both ends of the floor and their pluses on both sides of the floor where Harden isn't going to be a plus on both sides. I mean, like, I get that, and people should get that, but... I'm not discrediting it as a descriptor. I'm decrediting it as a, a way of explaining why a player is better. Than another player. Yes. But you're not, you're not disparaging it 
if to you use want, it as if evidence. If you want to talk about player X being better than player Y, I have no interest in whether and where their value comes from. The only thing I care about is how much value they're providing. Well, what I, if, I do not. I do not have any interest in knowing how much comes from category one, how much comes from category two, how much comes from category three, whatever those categories may be. I care about the total product. If I'm building a team, then that breakdown becomes much more relevant. I agree to a degree there, but so what if, I think what if the, the best point- way, but the best way I can explain this is if you and I are sitting and trying to come up with an expansion team, we might not draft the the player with the highest total value because the breakdown might be more more valuable to us, right? Right. Would you agree with that? Yeah. If we are just ranking players in a vacuum, how good they are, then all of a sudden that breakdown becomes wholly irrelevant. Okay, I, I agree there. But if we're looking at two players who are on more equal footing, doesn't that breakdown then become more important as well again it depends on the conversation so like and now we can circle back if you're gonna do if you're gonna do demarcus cousins versus carl anthony towns or anthony davis isn't that conversation gonna matter that davis and towns play defense more consistently than cousins who could be underrated on what What are we talking about like better player who's the better player and i don't care if if it doesn't matter if, if Boogie isn't providing any value on defense because if his offense is so superior to the other two that he's still providing more total value, then I'm going to say he's the better player. That breakdown is irrelevant to me in that situation. If you're trying to ask me which I would rather build around, then all of a sudden that breakdown is going to become What irrelevant. if all things are equal? Boogie's offensive contributions equal what Davis is giving you on offense and defense. Then they can be totally even. I don't think no. that I don't think that no, changes. No, because then there's more of a chance that Davis would pop. But now because you're, he's but now you're good adding in but now we're adding in the factor of potential. In context and subjectivity which matters. But not I, like, I mean, but again, like you're changing what you're ranking then. If you want to talk about Anthony Davis's potential, that potential is not relevant to who's the better player right now. So if we're having the argument about who's the better player at this very moment, I don't care about their potential. I don't care about what they did okay, three seasons ago. Let, let me phrase it to you like this. DeMarcus Cousins is – this is a vacuum. DeMarcus Cousins is offensive value or is equal to Davis's value on offense and defense. Who's the better player to you then? All things are – the, the total contribution. So Cousins is a total, neg- uh, total zero on defense in that scenario. Then those even, are just uh, for the record. Just those are the two players that I'm using. Oh, Cousins I know, I is know. actually kind of underrated on defense yeah. when he decides to try. But go ahead. But why can't I say them there that they're they're exactly even in that situation? That's called hedging, and that's something we don't do on the hardwood. But it's not. It's saying three equals three. Like you're asking me to say that three is greater than three, and I can't do that. Assuming that we have numbers that can accurately represent how valuable a player is or how good a player is on each end of the court, then you're asking me to say three is greater than three, and I can't do that. Which of those players are you picking, though? But now we're changing the question. No, we're not, because no, (laughs) we're not changing changing the question because inherently that two-way player is going to be better because they're more valuable 
to building a franchise or easier to build around or easier to get people who complement them. That's still changing the ranking parameters because being the best player doesn't have anything to do with building around them, right? If we're just talking about who the most valuable player is. I mean, and, and, and like in this scenario, if we're accurately representing how good players are, boiling them down into a single number, we're taking into context how much better they're making their teammates as well. Which shouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, but but we are in this scenario in my mind. I agree. Again, I'm, I think we're so close. And it, it, the we're, way we're, you're saying... We're splitting hairs, I think. But, yeah. you know, this all this all circles back to, to this How Tristan Thompson and Kevin How bad the are this season? <laughs> Tristan Thompson, <laughs> Kevin Love, right? Like, all I care about is who's providing more value if you're asking me to rank the best players on the Cavaliers. That's all I care about. Now, if you're talking about who's easier to build around, then that conversation shifts. I think that's firm but fair. But I wouldn't necessarily agree wholeheartedly. I'm going to be really interested in listening back to this one. And see who I'm, I'm going to – I'm starting to feel like super – we were talking about this before the podcast. I'm starting to feel like super sick. So if I come off as delusional, um, <laughs> I, I literally just started getting sick right before you recorded. I started sneezing. Now it's in my head and my chest, and I feel like I'm going to pass out. But um, <laughs> moving on from the Cavaliers. Was that really about the Cavaliers? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, do do either the Cavaliers or the Spurs, or I guess the Clippers, the Raptors, the Celtics, give hope that there might be a little bit more of a competitive balance in the league? No, not even I the Cavs. I don't think so. I don't think so. The Cavs don't match up well with the Warriors. And I, I think we could have said that last year, and I think we need to remember that they fell into that 3-1 to one hole in the first place. Yes, they climbed out of it, but they were in that hole. And now the Warriors fairly easily have the ability to pull, let's say, two of their four most important players off the floor. Like, they can render Thompson and Love, both of them unplayable at the same time because of the lineup that's out there. Yep. Like, that's a big problem. Especially because I think that you can throw out a team similar to last year's unit by, you know, replacing, when McCaw is healthy, let's say that he replaces Harrison Barnes and you've got Zaza instead of Andrew Bogut, right? And then you have Kevin Durant on the bench. Like, there's no reason for the Warriors to ever not have one of their best players on the court against the Cavaliers, whereas Cleveland is pretty starved for depth. Right. I just, I can't, there isn't a team in the NBA, if we started the playoffs today, I don't think there's a team, with the Warriors being up against this learning curve, I still don't see a team that would beat them four times in seven tries. You know what pisses me off, though? Is, is, the Pacers? Besides the Pacers, is the uh, the people who say that the Warriors are rendering this regular season boring or irrelevant or anything like that, because it's still not. Like, even though it's a foregone conclusion that this is going to be the best team in the West, probably the best team in the NBA, there's so much fun stuff happening. Right. Uh, some of the things, and I guess this will help us sum up the podcast a little bit more quickly because we've we've gotten so nuanced on what really should have been a more generalized podcast. Um, looking to see if the Thunder are actually better than expected without Durant. Like while it's still been early, you know they're four and one, and there are only four teams that are four and one or better right now, and they're all very good. The Warriors, Spurs, Thunder, and Cavs. We're not getting into point differential. 
Um, and the Thunder actually have a negative point differential after the that Warriors good. game. No, I don't think they're good either, but it's it's can they be? Like people no. are so reflexively picking them as a playoff team. I don't think I still they're think they're a like team. a seventh or an eighth seed. They're yeah, they're seven, eight or lottery. Um can the Jazz make that jump in spite of all these health problems? And yes. I know the Jazz aren't this marquee team, but they have Look at these injuries they've had. Alec Burks is out indefinitely. Gordon Hayward has a broken finger. Favors only just returned. Diaz is now out, and they're still three and two. Um, and their their defensive rating, once the season gets going, because some of the numbers are still ridiculous, it's going to be pretty good. Like they're right there. But are they going to make that fifty win leap? Um, what are the Celtics? They've had injuries too. Marcus Smart, uh, Al Horford. Um, Jay Crowder haven't been on the floor all three of them at the same time or healthy for the same game yet I don't think the Hawks are they for real like they're such a better rebounding and defensive team now that Dwight Howard is there and Schroeder is their starting point guard are they maybe better built to make some noise in the east this is the question we posed last year when they won fewer games even some of the rebuilding squads are really exciting you look at the Lakers um, you look at I'm probably just being way too biased here, but the Denver Nuggets and the Brooklyn Nets have just been super fun to watch early on. And yes, that's the Brooklyn Nets. There's just so much. Like, are the Portland Trailblazers going to prove to be an expensive flop? Are the Timberwolves actually playoff ready when they've come out looking the complete opposite? Do the Washington Wizards actually suck? Yes, they do. It's just so, like, there's just so many fascinating storylines to me aside from the Warriors. And the other thing that we didn't even really touch on, this is probably the last year of the Clippers as we know them. One of Chris Paul, if not both, or one of, if not both, of Chris Paul and Blake Griffin are gone this summer. What happens to DeAndre after that? I think I'm going to make your entire monologue my new ringtone, and then whenever somebody says the NBA is boring because of the Warriors, I'm just going to tell them to call me. I literally, I had to stop myself from going through each team i'm looking at like the list on nba.com and i literally there's just i know we're nerds and there are people who are nerdier than us when it comes to it but even for the casual fan <laughs> all right maybe not but let's, like, we're we're not casual fans but even i you could point out something for every team from every team for a casual fan to watch where and i was just having this conversation with my barber today uh who cut off all my hair. I had grown it out for a really long time in case anyone was wondering. I know you all were. I think this is we two have... straight podcasts. We've talked about your hair. Have we? I think so. Why did we talk about it last time? I don't remember. My, my sisters and fiance were like, they were crapping all over my long hair. They said I looked like such a doofus. Um, anyway, like we were just talking about this. If I could step away from the business of the NBA um, and just want to watch it as a fan, this is a sport where you can sit down, be a fan of any team, but still sit down and watch any other game between two teams that aren't related to your rooting interests. Like that's where the league is at right now. And even if it's not going to be both teams, every game guaranteed is going to have one team that you can sit down and just be like, wow, I, you know, I could watch this. I want to see what happens. I totally agree with you, but I want to circle back and, and talk about the jazz real briefly, mostly just in Andy's honor since he's not here. And we know that he would want to, if he was, did we absolutely nail the George Hill signing or what? Right. Like, I just, uh, yeah, that trade was just like, I can't believe people thought that the Pacers, like, even made out even in that deal. Yep. Like, that, that was just. But the, the cool thing about this Jazz team now is that 
their defense might be even better this year because Hill is a superior defensive point guard to anybody they had in that spot last year. As soon as all the pieces are back, that defense is going to be pretty much impenetrable. And all of a sudden, they've put together the pieces with Hill, with Joe Johnson, with the growth of Rodney Hood, with a little bit more from Derek Favors and maybe even Rudy Gobert to have these big quarters. We saw them put together a 38-point first quarter against the Spurs. Last year, they were a good team that didn't have that punch and that firepower to get over the hump in close games. All of a sudden, you're now asking your team, when you're playing the Jazz, to withstand that defense for four quarters and prevent a scoring explosion. So yeah, I'm still on board with them winning 50 games, assuming these injuries don't continue to add up. And the other thing is, is they're kind of like the Warriors in the sense that they haven't come close to their peak. And people don't realize this yet because I think they're... It's, pro- it's probably harder to envision their peak for people than it is for the, the people to envision the Warriors' peak now. The Jazz can play pretty much any style. It's just that they're not used to it yet. Like, they can, they can kill you in the half court. They can try and slow the game down to this halt, to this grind. They, they can space the floor. They can try and get up and down because they have the talent to do that. They can work the ball on the post. They, can, they have the guys who can theoretically shoot threes. And all the metrics aren't showing it yet. And, and their offense hasn't really been that good. But again, you're missing Hayward, who is arguably their best offensive player. Like these things are going to come together, and they have so much depth. You know, they can throw out their eight-man rotation. Yeah, okay, cool, but you could go twelve or fourteen deep on this without breaking a sweat, like without being like too like, oh, why are they doing this? Like they have NBA caliber guys everywhere. It's going to click for Dante Exum at some point. Watching Jazz games, you can already point to one or two instances each time they're playing where it's like, oh my god, how explosive is that guy? Right, and that, that's all, that's just offense. Like defense, he just seems like he's there. Like yeah. it just seems like it's just coming so naturally to him. Still a long way to go, but it just with the length and his speed, uh, and maybe because he knows that he can take be a little bit more aggressive because you have Gobert and Favors behind you most of the time. But he just seems smart. Like this team is going to be really, really good. Um, and I, I think if you're, you know, we have to go into really ambitious land here. But if you're picking teams that can beat the Warriors, they have to be up there just because they could be the best version of the anti-Warriors possible, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Absolutely. While the Jazz could the Jazz could probably try and play close to the Warriors style, they'll get killed. But they could be the anti-Warriors to the fullest extent. And I, I think that bodes super well for them. But on that note, because I'm looking at Dan and can see that he's trying really hard not to keel over from whatever illness is plaguing him, And because we're getting close to an hour on this podcast, so thank you to those of you who are still listening, I think we're going to move on to... Yes, that's right. It's time for Burns My Bacon. Um, And today we hand the talking stick to Mr. Adam Frommel, who, from the looks of it, doesn't look like he's going to keel over from sickness. No, I'm not, but I was actually pointing on you to take it. Oh... (laughs) Oh, yeah, let me take this one. And we shouldn't edit this out because this was organic and natural and <laughs> clumsy and reckless, which is just – that's what we strive to be here. Basically sums up hardwood knocks, right? Um, yeah. And I'm probably swinging at low-hanging fruit because that's what I do all the time. But the Knicks really just suck. Like <laughs> we didn't even mention them once during this podcast. And 
thank God we didn't, because it's not even about the fact that they once again peddled themselves as something more than a team that's going to fail to make the playoffs. Super team. Yeah, like what? Someone, someone put a muzzle on Derrick Rose. He just said tonight that he's like a great person, and I, I'm not. I don't know all the details of the sexual assault case, civil case that he won. Uh, all I know is that a jury believed him and and not the defendant. I, I don't really know what that what that says about it. Some and of the took stuff pictures that, with him afterwards, right? Right. That was. If I could just, I wish I could drop profanity and that iTunes wouldn't bleep it out, but I'm not gonna. But like some of the stuff that came out, like he's clearly put himself in some shifty situations. He clearly has some questionable morals. Um, I know he tried to downplay later on the whole I was nervous, so that's why I couldn't define consent. Like that's not, you know, we're not asking you to, you know, paint the Mona Lisa uh, while two million people are watching you. That was a fairly simple question. But then just the way he to transition into something less serious just the way he plays he doesn't have that chemistry with Christoph Porzingis just yet and that's now my main problem with the Knicks is as someone who's watched this team too much over the years I've grown accustomed to them saying they won't suck and then they just suck anyway and then the players not realizing that they're supposed to suck Christoph Porzingis is your future Christoph Porzingis is your best damn player on the roster already why is he being benched in fourth quarters for joking Noah? And then Jeff Hornacek comes out and says, yeah, we might've been able to play him more, but it's tough for him to guard, you know, power forwards in this league, which is exactly why you don't hand 70 plus million dollars to Joakim freaking Noah. When you have Porzingis on the roster, the Knicks are in such disarray. It's just, it's gross. Even if they somehow put it together this season to become a playoff team, it's not remotely better for Porzingis' future and thus the franchise's future. And that still has to be the main concern. I get that you want to do something with Melo there. And I get that Melo has come around with his play style a little bit over the past few years. And he seems more relatable and likable. But your priority still has to be the future. There are teams that do this balancing act. The Celtics. Hey, they're playing Jalen Brown. They're playing, they played Marcus Smart when they were a playoff team. The Spurs. Granted, don't get different results, but... They still bring guys along, and you can see progress. You have Christoph Porzingis is. If we're talking about players under twenty-five, where does he rank among the players under twenty-five? Is he? He's got to be top seven by now, right? I have no idea because I can't recall all the players who are like twenty-three and twenty-four off the top of my head. Yeah, you know what? That's fine. It, he's. But I mean, like, I think it would be lower than that because you got guys like Zach Levine and Carl Anthony Towns who are still right. only twenty-two. He's someone who you could easily see. He's someone who you could easily see being the second or third best player in his position one day. Oh, absolutely! And absolutely. There's no point. You're like you're trying to win a November game against the Pistons, so let's just not play him as much. No, like that's not. You know what? You don't play Joakim Noah as much, or you just put Kristaps Porzingis on the floor anyway. Like that guy needs to be on the floor, and it needs to be a clear directive to get him the ball. The thing I'll say about Noah is he gets Kristaps Porzingis the ball. Brandon Jennings has done a better job of getting Kristaps Porzingis the ball. Derrick Rose, on the most fundamental level, as the Knicks' lead guard, is failing. Forget about his inflated stats that aren't even really that inflated anymore. Like, give Kristaps the ball. And it's not, it's not just him. It's this entire organization. And already we're five, six, seven games not even there into the season. And they're... I, 
I can't even watch them when Kristaps isn't getting the ball because it's so self-damaging. It's it's so self-inflicted. It's so stupid. This was a long-ass burns my bacon. I'm sweating now, I think. I, I don't really have much to add to it, but I do want to say I hope they continue to lose and lose and lose. Not because I hate the Knicks or anything, but because the Draft sooner... Pick. The sooner they accept that they're not a playoff team, the sooner they're going to hand Kristaps those those big minutes. And even if we dive deeper into the weeds, it gives them a chance to to give minutes to intriguing young guys: Ron Baker, Mindaugas Kuzminskis, Kylo Quinn, Willie Hernan Gomez. Like, there's a lot of intrigue on the back end of this roster. There's a lot of upside that is just going to be buried if they're still convinced they're some super team capable of of competing in the East, much less making the playoffs. You know what my biggest fear is at this point? And it's, it might not even be, hey, we're going to marginalize Porzingis because at least I know not even the Knicks are stupid enough to trade him, I don't think, is that they're going to be at a point in December or January and they're going to start thinking about trading first-round picks, even if it's not 2017, it's 2018 because they need to win now. And, like, I hope they don't, but after seeing what – even after they signed all these, after they signed Noah and Courtney Lee, even after they went and traded for Derrick Rose, I never thought we would be here talking about do the Knicks need to give Kristaps Porzingis the ball more, or why aren't they giving him the ball enough? And now that we've reached that point, five games into the season, is it are they above trading any one of their forthcoming first round picks? Absolutely not. Nope. You know, it's even more stupid than two way value is name value. And that's yes. the currency the Knicks dealt with all offseason. Probably for the past 10 years, about. I'll still remember them trading for Tracy McGrady so that they could chase other washed-up names in free agency <laughs> that summer. It's just, it's a perpetual cycle. But that will do it for us here at the Hardwood Knox. I, th- I think this was a good podcast back from our hiatuses, which are becoming way too long and way too frequent we will as always promise to try and do better and probably disappoint you <laughs> if you want to speak with us more you can find us on twitter andy is at andrew d bailey adam is at frommel 09 that's f-r-o-m-a-l 09 i'm at dan favalli that's f-a-v-a-l-e and you can get at all of us on the dormant at hardwood knox account which i will say i promise will be more active in the future as well and probably disappoint you until next time everyone shout out Bino udre and his awesome hair the iphone 10r is here at t-mobile and there's a whole lot to love like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share nice and how emojis now turn every facetime with the kids into fun time <laughs> In fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just 40 bucks a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. 
The iPhone XR is here at T-Mobile, and there's a whole lot to love, like those perfect portrait mode selfies you're going to share. Nice. And how emojis now turn every FaceTime with the kids into fun time. <laughs> in fact, the only thing you'll love more than your iPhone XR is getting it included in the price when you get an unlimited plan. That's right. Get both unlimited and iPhone XR included for just 40 bucks a month. Sure, you can get unlimited somewhere else. But for the same price at T-Mobile, you get unlimited and iPhone XR. Join today and get iPhone XR included with your unlimited plan for just $40 a line for four new lines. Call 1-800-T-MOBILE or visit a store today. $30 for essentials plus $10 for iPhone XR with auto pay and qualifying trade-ins via 36 bill credits. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using more than 50 gigs per month. Video at 480p for well-qualified buyers plus taxes and fees. Contact us before canceling or remaining balances due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. Zero down plus $20.84 per month for 36 months. Full price $749.99, 0% APR. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.